All right, go ahead and turn in your Bible to Acts 17. We're continuing our series that we started last week. And um, I wasn't sure how to feel about it at first because I only, I only have one verse. When, we're setting, when we were sitting uh, in the office working out how we were going to do this, uh, I got one verse. And you know what? No, no, no. You know what? I've got, I've got uh, a couple of sermons here from this one verse. So I was glad I only had one verse. Uh, it, there is a lot here. So let's unpack it. Let's look at it. Engaging our culture with the gospel. And we're in Acts 17, verse 16. Now, when Paul, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, he's talking about uh, Silas and Timothy. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. All right. So the question today for us is how do we see and approach the lost people around us? What do you think about those who deny God and reject biblical views and values? What is your heart posture toward the unbelievers in our society, especially those that you interact with? To begin with, we need to define something. Engaging our culture. What is culture? There's all kinds of uh, uh, definitions, but I settled on a, this is kind of a combination of several. A culture is a way of life of a group of people, the behaviors, beliefs, values, symbols that they accept generally without thinking about them that are passed along by communication and imitation from one generation to the next. Culture is symbolic communication. It's expressed in the many ways we tell our stories, we celebrate, we remember the past, we entertain ourselves, we imagine the future. It includes shared experiences and sports. That's a big one here. Sports, the arts, music, movies, TV, culture. So as, as, I, as I thought about what Paul saw as he took in Athens, you know, he, he had to be uh, amazed by the architecture, right? He had to be uh, inspired. It, it must have been overwhelming to think about the history there. And he's admiring the arts. But the idols were everywhere. But I imagine as Saul took in Athens, it was, as I thought about it this week, a movie quote came to my mind. It's an old movie, and I'm not advocating or encouraging that you see it. I don't do scary movies, and this was a scary movie to me, Okay. Uh, somebody called me a wimp for saying that, but, uh, it, it was the movie with Bruce Willis called the sixth sense. Okay. And there's a little kid in that movie and, and he, and he said something and you all probably can quote it. You've heard it, whether you've seen the movie or not. Now I thought about whether I should do this or not, but I, I want to do this. If you know the quote I'm talking about, I want you to whisper it and we're going to spook everybody else out. Okay. I want you to whisper it loud, all right? On three, two, one. I see dead people. Somebody whispers loud. Really? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> She's a preschool teacher. <laughs> yeah, uh, I see dead people. Okay, I'm not going to explain the movie to you. But spiritually speaking, as Paul looked around, knowing what you and I know, that if you're not in Christ, you're dead in your sin, Paul saw spiritually dead people. That's what he saw. 
And all cultures, listen, all cultures now and all that have ever existed before, they have inherently been influenced by and defined by sin because all people are sinful people. But this culture that we live in, we're going to talk about that. The world regularly tries to present as normal and wonderful and even heroic what was considered sinful just, you know, by the Christian West for 2,000 years. That's the culture we're living in now. I heard someone say this week that we've been living in a post-Christian culture, but that now we're living in an anti-Christian culture and that we're moving toward a pre-Christian culture. That's what Athens was, a pre-Christian culture. But this sinful culture is where we live. And, of course, we've heard it before, this, this idea. It's almost several verses kind of summed up into a bumper sticker. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. Yeah. We are to live holy, set apart lives. Jesus is our Lord and Savior, and we're to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. So you might say uh, the question of our sermon series is, as we are in the world and not of it, how do we reach those who are of the world with the gospel? More directly today, how should we think about those who are of the world? And what should our heart posture be toward them? As we look at what Paul sees and feels as he looks at Athens, I think we catch a glimpse of the mind and the heart of Christ. Last Sunday, Gerald laid out this short sermon series and gave us a good overview of the, the whole passage of Acts 17. The passage today, and, and therefore the sermon, is going to be more foundational. The rest of the series will be more practical. But before we can really talk about Paul and what Paul saw, we have to think about how Paul saw. That might not be good English, but and that's not in your sermon notes, but I would encourage you to write it down. How Paul saw. How? With spiritual eyes. Second Corinthians 5.16. That's the, that's the chapter that's talking about how we are to be ambassadors for Christ. We're representing Him. We're speaking for Him. We're sharing the gospel. That's the idea of 2 Corinthians 5. Verse 16 says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Whether people around us understand or not, they will live for eternity somewhere. And there is a spiritual world, and we should have a spiritual view of others. So how did Paul see? He saw with discernment, spiritual discernment. He saw with, with a, a heart to understand. He was pursuing understanding the Greeks and their culture. As the great theologian Daniel Wright said at Life Group this week, we need to be students of the culture instead of just consumers. We need to be looking at our culture and seeing how we can speak Christ into it. We're to, we're to see, or Paul saw with discernment. He saw pursuing understanding, and he saw with wisdom. With wisdom. With spiritual, with biblical wisdom. How can I best share the gospel? How can I introduce this person I'm talking to, these people, to the person of truth that is Jesus? They don't need just ideas. They don't need just facts. They need the person of Jesus. 
So spiritual eyes. How did Paul see? With spiritual eyes. So your first point, what Paul saw should cause us to ask, what do I see? So what did Paul see? What was his perspective? Paul gives us an example. He gives us an example here, here of how to exegete a culture. That is, how to interpret and understand the culture through a biblical lens. Paul saw a culture, number one, defined by idolatry. Even the pagans saw Athens as being overrun with idols. Pliny the Younger suggested that there were more than 73,000 idols in Athens. 73,000. It suggested that there were more idols in Athens than all the rest of Greece combined. Listen, we are made for praise. We are made to worship. There's always been the testimony of creation and the testimony in each heart that we were made to worship. The beauty of creation should cause us to look to the creator. These things were given by God to encourage men to seek after him and to worship him. History is full of man's attempts to get to God and to worship some deity. Idolatry is seen throughout the Old Testament. Substituting anybody or anything for the Creator and Redeemer makes it an idol. Romans 1 declares that failure to worship God is at the heart of sin. And Paul said in Romans 1, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And that they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creation rather than the creator. So Paul saw idolatry. Paul saw idolatry. Another way to say that is Paul saw worshipers worshiping unworthy things. In a sense, you could say the Greeks got it right. We all worship. We do. The question is, who or what do I worship? They just didn't know the one true God who alone is worthy of worship. Now, we know idolatry is sin. Early on, God nailed, this, nailed down this idol worshiping thing, right? Do you remember the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Okay, Exodus. I want you to imagine being a citizen of Athens. 73,000 idols. I imagine when you met someone, one of the first questions, it wasn't, you know, where do you work? What do you do? It was, uh, who do you worship? Who are your idols? It's kind of Burger King. It's have it your way. I will choose who I will worship. I wonder if they had t-shirts or robes with their favorite idol on it. That sounds a little mocking, but I mean, we wouldn't do that today, would we? Seventy-three thousand idols. Paul saw a hunger for spiritual things. Paul saw worshipers looking for something real to worship. And many of them knew there was a world beyond this one. Many desired to know spiritual things, and for many there must have been an awareness that there was something missing. Listen, 73,000 gods isn't enough if you don't know the one true God. It isn't enough. Paul saw a hunger 
And Paul saw an ignorance, a spiritual ignorance, a lack of knowledge. There was an idol of, to the unknown God. Think about that. There was an idol to the unknown God. Paul, in a divinely inspired way, I believe, was going to use this aspect of their culture to introduce them to the God that they did not know. Again, thinking about Athens, the intellectual center of Greek thought and culture. This is after Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. Those are great thinkers that are still talked about and studied today. But Paul is standing before these people. These, there are great minds here. They surely thought of themselves that way. And you see, this is, uh, you see that in how they interacted with Paul. They called him a seed picker. It, in, in another way, it, it kind of implies that Paul must have gone around and picked up ideas from different places. And then he put it all together. And Paul came up with this. This gospel that he's babbling about. But think back to Paul's past. Back when he was Saul. He was taught by the best Jewish teachers. He was respected himself as a religious leader and a Pharisee. He had an incredible resume. He was no slouch intellectually, okay? Saul was a persecutor of Christians. And he was zealous and he was good at it. And he was beyond certain that he was right, right up until the moment that he met Jesus. And Jesus knocked him off that horse, and he was blinded by that light temporarily. And Jesus changed him. Jesus made the difference. And now here we see Paul. But I wonder if Paul, as he looked in these Greek faces, saw, saw his old self. In the arrogance. In the intellect that just knew they already had it all figured out. There's another way to put this spiritual ignorance. It's blindness. Blindness to spiritual things. I love this quote. It's from the Journal of Biblical Counseling. A fundamental part of being spiritually blind is that you are blind to your blindness. A fundamental part of being spiritually blind is that you are blind to your blindness. You don't realize you're blind. You don't realize you're, you're not seeing What's there? It's, it's the spiritually dead, not realizing they're dead. And then Paul saw a need for the hearing of the gospel. Romans 10, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How, how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without somebody preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Paul understood that this was not really a culture war in which it's a battle of ideas and policies and politics. No, this was a spiritual battle. And it wasn't about who was going to define the culture. No, people's souls were at stake. His purpose wasn't to fix the culture. It was to engage the culture. Really to engage the people of the culture. Ephesians 6.12 for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That was true for Paul, and that is true for us. So what do we see as we exegete the culture? Do we have a biblical perspective? Do we have spiritual eyes first? 
Well, let me ask you, do you do we see idolatry? Do we see people worshiping unworthy things in our culture? Absolutely. It's all around us all the time. I really appreciate pastor and author Tony Morita's commentary on this. He said an idol is anything to which we turn when we need something only Jesus can provide. We think of idols as statues and shrines. But he goes on to say there are also substitute gods and functional savers, saviors that supplant the true and living God in the human heart. Money, success, pleasure, other things. You know what? There are 73,000 plus today. Idols. And even as believers, we have to check our hearts regularly to make sure we're not misplacing our worship. Amen? It's true. Listen, idols cannot save, they cannot redeem, and they cannot satisfy the human heart. They can't. Secondly, do we see a hunger for spiritual things? In Athens, they want to be entertained. Well, that's not our culture, is it? We want it in 30 seconds or less. They wanted to be entertained. They wanted to hear something new. Man, they were bored with the old stuff. That's why they took Paul to the Areopagus. Today, people are always looking for something else. I think there's a hunger for spiritual things. Is there spiritual ignorance or blindness? Absolutely. Is there a need for the gospel to be shared in our culture? Yes. Yes. Now, we've talked about what Paul saw in Athens and how we see much the same thing. But you remember how I started talking about how Paul saw what he saw. He saw with spiritual eyes, not according to the flesh, with discernment, pursuing understanding, with wisdom. In his book, Evangelism in a Skeptical World, I think you're going to hear from this book over the next few weeks. Francis Chan helps us to understand how to exegete our culture. He explains the differences between those born into and characterized by postmodernism and those from the age of modernity. Now, postmodernity started in the 80s, okay? So most folks from the 80s forward kind of see the world this way. In modernity, you might say if you're my age or younger, I mean older, you're more in the modernity camp, okay, of how to see things. In modernity, it was about logic and proof and evidence, and we debated ideas. In post-modernity, which, by the way, defines most of our culture now, in post-modernity, it's more about imagination and aesthetics and stories and emotions. Okay? And he gives this great example in his book, and, and so I want to share this with you. He said, have you noticed how cookbooks have changed? Now, if you're like us, most of our cookbooks are old, and we've had them for a long time, or we got them from Sarah. <laughs> Sarah had, had an incredible collection of cookbooks. Okay, Sorry, Sarah, I didn't mean to call you out. Um, this, he says, have you noticed how cookbooks have changed? In modernity, a cookbook gave you a recipe with a list of ingredients and instructions on how to cook. It was propositional. But boom, there it is. In post-modernity, the recipe comes to us in a story. I've got friends coming to visit me tonight, and I'm going to cook them a dish that I learned from my grandmother when I was traveling through Morocco on my spring break. But to do that, we're going to have to go to the farmer's market here in Los Angeles and get some ingredients. Come with me. Let's go to the farmer's market. 
That's, that's post-modernity, okay? And he makes the point that as we share the gospel, we need to demonstrate how the story of Jesus has interacted and changed our story. Listen, our testimony is not the gospel, but it is important. You with me? Your story of how Jesus entered your story, that is important. And with moderns, listen, the way it used to be, we employed this logic. This is true. If it's true, then you must believe it. And, and if you believe it, now you must live it. And that, if it's true, then you must, uh, this is true. If it's true, then you must believe it. If you believe it, now you must live it. But with postmodernism, it's turned upside down. You start with this. The Christian life is livable. If it's livable, then it's also believable. If it's believable, then it's also true. Did you see that? It's turned upside down. Is it livable? If it's livable, then it's believable. If it's believable, then it's true. And that's the world we're living in now. And that's why it's not just about a presentation. It's about sharing your life and demonstrating a gospel that is livable. It's livable. This is why relationship is so important. Because they need to see the gospel and the difference it makes in your life. One of the buzzwords for postmoderns is authenticity. They want to know, is it real in our lives? And in that sense, Chan says, we ourselves are a component of the message. Our message is embodied. Paul said to the Thessalonians, I mean, that idea isn't new, because Paul said to the Thessalonians, our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power and with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you. For your sake. They heard the truth and they saw the truth lived out. So what do we see? Are we seeing with a biblical perspective? Man, we can't get so hung up in this battle for the culture that we miss God's agenda of changing hearts, transforming lives from death to life. You see, culture is defined by beliefs and behaviors that flow out of the heart. The culture looks so bad because that's what's in people's hearts. They need Jesus. Again, spiritualize for the spiritual battle. We don't want to be like Peter in Matthew 16, but I feel like we are sometimes. Our, our minds are sometimes focused on the wrong thing. In Matthew 16, in verse 21, somewhere there, 2021, 20, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and be killed. And on the third day be raised. So he's preparing his disciples for what's coming. But Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this will never happen to you. But Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get thee behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Are we tempted to do that? To put our minds on the things of man instead of the things of God? If we spend too much time and energy on the culture, then we're just treating the symptoms. We need to be about bringing them to Jesus, setting our minds on the things of God, and remembering where the real battle is. And more and more we find ourselves in a culture that wants everything seen through the lens of politics. Everybody said, "Uh uh-oh. 
Listen, the more we can be pushed into groups and into all these labels, the more divided we are. And in terms of the spiritual battle, that only serves to help the wrong side. Our enemy does not want Christians talking to anyone else but Christians. Are you with me? Politics and ideologies and definitions are constantly in flux. I read an article by Dr. Chuck Fuller, and he said it this way. He said, we might describe the unchanging truth of the word of the world simply by paraphrasing slave trader until he came to Jesus. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, who said man is a great sinner. He summed up the world by saying man is a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. Dr. Fuller went on to say the gospel, when it, when it comes to politics and Christians, the gospel must be in the driver's seat of our convictions. It must be our platform. Because by it, God will judge all other platforms. Our first loyalty requires a critical distance from partisan politics by which we can speak to it without being trapped in it. Lord, help us to see others through spiritual eyes. So what do we see as we look at the world in which we live, we see a culture that is perverse and wicked. The culture is basically the fallen environment. And it just is. And, and God does desire that we would be salt and light. That we would have that kind of impact in this community. And in those we interact with. And as we see with spiritual eyes, that is the ultimate reality. There are people who are ignorant of the one true God. They are impacted and broken by their own sin and the sin around them. And they are sinners in need of a Savior. They're spiritually dead and in need of the one who defeated sin and death. And was resurrected and is alive. Jesus is the answer. So secondly, what Paul felt should cause us to ask, what do I feel when I see what I see? Well, what did Paul feel? That word provoked, man, as I unpacked it, I kept unpacking it. It was one of those things that was like, wow, there's so much to that word. And we could just read over it and say, oh, provoked. Yeah, I know what that means. So much more. Stirred, deeply distressed, exasperated, which means to be, sometimes I had to look up the words that describe this word. Okay. It means irritate intensely. Ultimately, what we have com combined into this word is a mixture of righteous indignation for the name of God and compassion for those lost in their idolatry. But I like the way Albert Moeller, president of Southern Seminary, and he, he just put out a new study Bible, and I was checking it out, and, 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 and he had, I liked his description here. He said, um, the description of Paul's emotion is, is rather broad. But it's likely to encapsulate a range of feeling. Anger, grief, and concern. I like that. And, and, I, and I actually want to tweak it a little bit. I think anger is kind of strong. I think holy frustration. That's the JT word for it. Holy frustration. Paul knew what it was like to be ignorant of the truth. He knew what it was like to er be arrogantly convinced of lies. To be thoroughly and completely deceived. To think that you have it all and realize you have nothing. Paul knew that. They needed Jesus. But there was grief. There was deep sorrow. He was moved. He was troubled emotionally. 
to the point of having concern for these people. Compassion. We see Paul's heart in his response. He took time and great effort to be with the people. He took every opportunity to speak the gospel in ways that used aspects of their culture as a tool for opening up the gospel for the people. Paul could have immediately condemned the people, and rightly so. He could have gone Romans 1 on them and just said, you know, you think you're wise in your own eyes, but you're foolish. That would have been and still is true. He didn't do that. His heart was broken to see so many people exchanging the glory of God to bow to created things. But Paul was moved by holy frustration, by sorrow, by compassion. You know, Paul at times early uh, encouraged the early church. In Scripture we see it, he encourages us to follow his example. And of course, we should follow Jesus' example, right? Jesus had compassion in Mark 6. 34, when Jesus saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That defines everybody that doesn't know the shepherd of Jesus. So what should we feel? What is our heart posture? Of course, we're to follow the example of Jesus. Sometimes I'm afraid our heart posture toward the unbelievers around us is less like Paul and Jesus and more like Jonah. Jonah did not want to take God's message of repentance to the lowly people that he despised in Nineveh. He didn't want to do it. He was the most reluctant missionary ever. If you, I'm not, I don't have time to get into it, but just think about the travel arrangements that God made for Jonah to get him to where he was supposed to be. The belly of a big fish. And not only that, but he was one messed up missionary. Because he delivered God's message and then he was mad about people responding rightly to that message and then God's merciful response. When God saw what they did and how they responded to the message and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord, isn't that what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That's why I tried to forestall and I tried to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who relents from sin and calamity. Is that not the most messed up thing ever? He's a preacher who's mad people responded. What? God, I knew you were going to be compassionate. I knew you were merciful. How dare you? Wow. He didn't want them to be saved because he didn't believe they deserved to be saved. Now, you and I know no one deserves to be saved. Amen? Including you and I. But what is our heart posture toward the lost? Do we want them to be saved? Do we grieve over their lostness and what that means? Do we have concern and compassion for their eternity? Mm. You think about our culture and how messed up it is right now. And it just seems like it gets worse every day. And I just, just, just momentarily want to think about that. Think about what does our culture say about identity and how we can speak the gospel into that. 
Culture says that you are and can identify as whatever you decide. I've heard recently that kids are deciding they're animals and insects. And they're being affirmed in that. The enemy tries to mar God's good creation and tries to bring confusion and chaos, especially to vulnerable, to the vulnerable. And we're called to teach and train them in the truth. To the lost around us, we can speak the truth. We should speak the truth. Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This could be a sermon in and of itself. I'm just going to give this to you right here. We are all, all image bearers of God. Gender is God-ordained category, male or female. Gender is good. It's assigned at birth, and it is not separate from sex. This is truth. I want to speak it here so there's no confusion. And it makes sense to share that while we're talking about it. But we can speak the truth, but we've got to do it in love so that it can be heard. You speak the truth. We heard it in Ephesians. We're to speak it with love, which requires spiritual awareness. It requires discernment. How Paul responded to what he saw and what he felt mattered. And because he responded in a Christ-like way, demonstrating kindness and respect, interacting with the people, learning their culture, showing care and concern, really showing compassion, he was given a hearing because of that. They listened to him share the gospel. And some were saved. Here's the reality. Paul could have went to the Ten Commandments. And again, he could have gone Romans 1. He could have knocked over the idols. He could have mocked them like they were mocking him. Oops, you know, kick over the idol. Oops, I broke your God. He could have, he could have mocked them. He could have. And that would have been the flesh, not the spirit. And nobody would have come to Christ. And you say, well, Paul would have never done that. Why bring that up? Because I'm afraid that's how you and I tend to interact with our culture. We're kicking at people's idols. We're kicking at their idols in the Twitter sphere and on Facebook. And that's about the only time we interact with some folks that are different from us. Listen, disrespect is not the answer. You with me? Paul could have said, this place is crazy. I'm going to wait for my boys on the edge of town. Would there have been any spiritual fruit then? You know, many times instead of engaging, we walk away. Disregard is not the answer. Disrespect is not the answer. Disregard is not the answer. We must share the truth. But it comes while we live the truth. With respect, treating Others as those who are made in the image of God and therefore of infinite value with kindness and with love. Our statement of belief is the Baptist faith, the message. And this is what it said. The sacredness of human personality is evident in that God created man in his own image and in that Christ died for man. Therefore, every person of every race possesses full dignity and is worthy of respect and Christian love. Amen. Amen. And what does our culture say about life? It devalues life. And of course we should stand for those who cannot speak for themselves. Of course we should stand uh, against abortion and for life. But it's not just for those who are unborn. It's also for those who are living. And it comes back to 
respect and kindness and love as we listen and as we get to know and engage and let others see the gospel in our lives and see that it's because we know they're made in God's image. It's because of the gospel that we respect. We can respect you and we want to show share our lives with you. We want to love you. That's that says we value you and we value your life. And that's what Christians should be saying to those that we want to share the gospel with. And then meaning. What does the culture say about finding fulfillment and how we can speak to that? Well, we can find common ground. And it begins by the fact that we're all made in God's image. And secondly, that we're all sinners in need of a Savior. We can agree that there should be, and many times is, there's a hunger for spiritual things, even if it's not realized, and that we all really desire authenticity, or we should. To be real. Our culture is looking in at least 73,000 places for meaning and fulfillment. It's the unknown God, the unknown God to them. The one that they don't know, that they, that they need to know. And they're looking for meaning and fulfillment, and we have it. We have found it in Jesus. And Jesus said, I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Brothers and sisters, we must respond in the spirit, not the flesh, with, com- with the compassion of Christ. I want to close by sharing a couple of uh, passages. 2 Corinthians 2. God uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of Him everywhere. Verse 15. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. We are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To one We are an aroma that brings death to the other, an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. Folks, to God, who's the one that we serve, to him, we are a pleasing aroma, period. That's good news. To others, as we said, to spread the knowledge of him, that is the gospel. To those who are saved, we're going to smell like life because they're coming from death to life. But to those who reject him, we're going to smell like death. And that may be how they treat us and what they say to us. We started out by talking about seeing dead people, those who are spiritually dead. We end by seeing that those that to those who are spiritually dead, our presence and our Fully alive existence is going to smell like death to those who are perishing, who reject Jesus. And for us to engage the culture and make a difference at all, for us to make a difference in the lives of the unbelievers around us, we have to live and speak the gospel by the power of the Spirit. We are to be showing life in Christ and being the aroma of Christ. So are we going to be Paul or Jonah? I want to come back to this idea of being in the world but not of it. In an article by David Mathis, he wrote, uh, man, he, he suggested that we should tweak this slogan. And I, I thought it was really, really good. As you look at John 17, Jesus is praying for his disciples. On the eve of his crucifixion, verse 14, Jesus said, I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And in verse 16, Jesus says it again. They're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. 
See, being not of the world is it isn't the destination in these verses. It's the starting place. Jesus doesn't want us to be of the world. We get that. But not being. But it's going somewhere here. Matthew says the point is that we aren't just to circle up and wait for God to get us out of this terrible place. When you look at verse 18, Jesus said this. As you sent me into the world, he's praying. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. I've sent them into the world. The phrase shouldn't be in the world, but not of the world. Instead, it should be not of the world, but sent into the world. You with me? Not of the world, but sent into the world. I wanted to share with you briefly in closing the testimony of Rosario. Jason picks on me for not being able to say her name. Rosario Butterfield. This is uh, her testimony. I printed it all from uh, Christianity Today. The title is My Train Wreck Conversion. And under that it says, the, the byline is, a, a leftist lesbian professor. As a, les, a leftist lesbian professor, I despised Christians. And then somehow I became one. The word Jesus stuck in my throat like an elephant, elephant tusk. No matter how hard I choked, I couldn't hack it, hack it out. Those who professed the name commanded my pity and wrath. She said, Christians in particular were bad readers, always seizing opportunities to insert a Bible verse into a conversation with the same point as a punctuation mark to end the discussion rather than or conversation rather than deepen it. She said, I cared about morality, justice and compassion and felt like Christians did not. That was her view of Christians. And she was living her happy life with her partner and she's doing good things, but she's thinking and studying and doing research on how to destroy Christians and Christianity. It was kind of her side project. And she wrote an article to the local newspaper about promise keepers in 1997. And that made her a little famous. She said she uh, she kept a box on each side of her desk after that, one for hate mail and one for fan mail. But there was one letter that didn't fit in either of those boxes. It was from the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. His name was Ken Smith. And Ken was kind and he was caring. But he asked some good questions about what my presuppositions were and how I got there. And as a researcher, I was challenged. But she said, I immediately threw it in the trash can. But it wouldn't let go of me. And so that night I went and pulled it out. And that began a two year relationship between Ken and his wife and Rosaria. And they began to to talk and, and it didn't make sense. She's doing research. Now, that's why she's talking to him. She wanted to ask questions of a Christian, but they were too angry. Her impression and her experience was the Christians that mocked her on Gay Pride Day that seemed to be happy that her and everybody she loved were going to, going to hell. But Ken didn't mock. He engaged. And 
We became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics and the Bible. And when we would eat together, Kim would pray, but it was like nothing I'd ever heard before. His prayers were intimate and vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. And because they didn't invite me to church, I knew it was safe to be friends with them. But she started reading the Bible. Again, research. But her friends started noticing that the Bible was changing her. The Bible got, she said, the Bible got to be bigger inside of me than I, and it overflowed into my world. I fought against it with all my might. And then one morning, I rose from the bed of my lesbian lover and an hour later sat in the pew of that church. And then she recounts how God used Ken and his wife and the other believers there. It took a little while. But she began to realize that this identity that she had was of her own making and not from God. And that God had something more for her. And it began with the gospel. It began with the gospel. She lost. She turned to Christ. She lost everything. But God has given her a new life. And now she is the wife of a Presbyterian pastor in Durham. And she has children. And God has used her to tell her story to many, many others. And to help the church realize that beating people over the head with the Bible does not bring them to Christ. You with me? How will they call on Him in whom they've not believed? And how will they believe in Him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without somebody preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. I think Paul saw dead people who could be made alive in Christ. Jesus makes all the difference. Lord, give us eyes of faith to see. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity today to consider these truths. Lord, I pray that you would make and mold our hearts to look like your heart. Lord, that we would see through spiritual eyes and understand the depth of the need of the folks around us. Not to be caught up in their worldliness and the sin and forget how we were so easily entangled before. We were caught in it as well. Lord, help us to remember what we've been saved from and the reality of the power of the gospel. Lord, help us to be not shy to share it. But Lord, help us to be willing to invest our lives to share the gospel life with those around us who don't want to hear it until they see it and see that it's livable and believable to then be able to see that it's true. Lord, help us to be faithful in that way. Lord, we struggle. We struggle. Our sin nature we get caught up in the flesh, and we we can feel so we can feel so holy and be so not holy at the same time. Lord, help us to be help us to be empowered and in the, under the control of the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. 
Lord, we pray that you would use us. Lord, I pray right now that you would put people on our minds that we need to be intentional about praying for and reaching out to or building a relationship with. Lord, use your church to build your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'll be down front to pray with you. The altar's open. Let's stand together and respond with, with praise.